tonight with the message, and that is it's part two of a one-parter. Um, when, I, when I got into this message a couple of weeks ago, I intended for it to be one message on interpreting the Bible, and then we couldn't get done because there's just too much to talk about, and so I put it off to the next week, and the next week I put Jason on the spot with a two-hour notice and had him teach because I couldn't get across the mountain. So um, we're going to pick it up tonight, and I'll do a little bit of an introduction as we get into it to kind of remind us where we've been, right, because it's been two weeks. So I'm going to kind of skip through my old notes and, and pull out a few things I want to talk about as we look at this subject of properly interpreting the Bible, because the Bible not properly interpreted is dangerous, yeah. right? Um, false religions, cults have all risen up by taking the Bible out of context, by using it wrongly. I know people who use the Bible as a weapon. They're not, they're not looking for a verse or what the right. verse means. They're looking for a verse that says what they want to say to somebody else, and they're, they're using it for their meaning, what they intend for it. And that's not what the Bible is for, right? And we will be judged. I'm in a room right now with a lot of street preachers. We will be judged, brothers, for how we preach the Word of God. We will be judged for how we handle the Word of God, whether in the pulpit or out on the street. I do both. I'm keenly aware that I will be held accountable for the way I use the Word of God. If I'm using it improperly, dishonestly, God will call me to account for that. That's a sobering thing. I, I, I worry so much when I see all these, I've been to churches where you see all these young preachers, right? Just anxious to become preachers. And someone needs to warn them that, hold up, <laughs> you're more accountable when you're a teacher. You're held to stricter. It's not a light thing, yeah. right? They see the guy up on the platform and the lights, and they, they, want, they think he's the big guy. They want to be the big guy. Well, fine, but with being the big guy comes big responsibility. God will judge a preacher far stricter than the average churchgoer. Understand that. Even if you're not a pastor, you're out on the street, you're lifting up the word of God, God will hold you accountable. So know how to interpret the Bible. Know the proper way to handle the word of God. We don't want to be deceitful with the word of God. Because God has spoken. And if we take what he has spoken and we twist it, or we abuse it, we're doing what? We're making him a liar. That's blasphemy, right? This is not my words. Um, I can take it. If Jason were to write a nice book, I took his book and I twisted his words, he might be offended, but there's no eternal consequence to that. But this is the word of God, not the word of man, right? Not the word of man. And so we must be careful how we handle the word of God. So in, as a matter of review, we're not going to take everything in my notes. I kind of made little marks by what I wanted to point out. But Second uh, Chronicles 7.14, go ahead and turn there. We'll start there on our review. I think we'll spend about 10 minutes in review and then move on to the last point that I didn't cover last time. Second Chronicles 7.14, we all know it. We all hear it every year. Fourth of July, Memorial Day. Around 9-11, <laughs> we all hear it. Second Chronicles 7.14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's a great promise, isn't it? A wonderful promise. But here's the problem. When we don't understand the context of Scripture, we misapply the text of the Scripture, don't we? So while 2 Chronicles 7.14 is a wonderful promise, it's not to America. It's not to America. It's to Israel. Old covenant Israel. Right? So God has, so we can humble ourselves. We can turn from our wicked ways. And we should. But God has not promised to restore America to some greatness if we do that. Right? He's not promised that. Um, look, if you're in Second Chronicles 7, look at verses 13 through 15. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for a house of sacrifice. What place are you talking about? Washington, D.C., right? The Lincoln Memorial, right? No, no, no. He's talking about the temple in Jerusalem. If I shut up the heaven, there'd be no rain. Or if I command the locusts to devour the land. Or if I send pestilence among my people. By the way, God still works with nations today. Okay, God still judges nations. I'm not discounting that. Do you know why there's droughts and wildfires in America? It's not global warming. It's punishment for our sins. We have to understand that. God judges nations. The problems we have today are problems that are caused by our sin. Yes. 
So God does send those things. Do you know why people are confused over what's a man and what's a woman? You know why? Because of our sin. That's That's why. He has sent great delusion to our land and to our people. He does that. I'm not discounting that. If my people, which are called by my name, who are his people? Were they the same people who meet in that temple in Jerusalem? Old covenant Israel, right? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will they hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. The curses he's talking about here were the consequences for not keeping the covenant of God. He said, you don't keep covenant, I'm going to send these judgments on you. And then if you turn and repent, I'll remove those judgments, I'll heal your land. Once again, that's not a promise to us. But it's all over social media. It's on me, 4th of July, you can't look on Facebook without seeing that verse and an American flag behind it, right? Why? Because we don't know how to properly interpret Scripture. We use it to our benefit. What does he say at the end of that? Now mine eyes shall be open and mine ears attend unto the prayer that is made in this place. He's talking about Israel, Old Covenant Israel. Uh, let's go to Jeremiah 29, 11. You all know this one too. I picked out the ones that everybody knew in case you didn't have a Bible. You can know what I'm talking about. These are misapplied passages. I'll mention in brief, I'll mention in passing again. Psalm 33, 12. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. You guys ever see that with an American flag behind it? Hey, it's true in application. Any nation that follows the Lord is blessed. There's an application there. But that verse is not about America. Read the rest of the verse. You never see the rest of the verse. The people he has chosen for his own inheritance. Again, the nation of Israel. Remember, I think I mentioned two weeks ago when we did this lesson the first time. The Bible has one meaning, many applications. So there's an application in Psalm 33. For America. But we're not the, 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 the object of the verse. We need to understand that. Anyways, Jeremiah 20, 11. For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. Uh, one of our family members a couple of years ago posted a picture of her and her boyfriend with this verse on, on the picture. That verse has nothing to do with her and her boyfriend, who today aren't even together anymore. Um, we love that verse because, oh, man, God has thoughts of peace towards us. And give us an expected. And, and listen, God does have thoughts of peace toward us. There is an application there for Christians. Right? All things work together for our good. But that verse was not about us. And I'm pretty sure if you read that, quoted that verse to Paul as he's getting his head chopped off, he wouldn't have found it very comforting. Right? That was about Israel in Babylonian captivity. God is reminding them that I've not thrown you away. I've not discarded you. I have thoughts of peace towards you. I'm going to regather you back to your land again. There was promises to Israel there that are not promises to you and to me. Okay? Uh, God has not promised us, and my street preacher friends can verify this, he has not promised us lives of peace and prosperity. He has promised that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Okay, so we need to read this verse in light of that verse. One verse doesn't cancel out the other verse, right? They both have meaning, okay? So that's just a couple of of examples of what happens when you misapply the Word of God, when you don't know the context of what the Bible's talking about. Corey Ten Boom just hated the doctrine of the preacher of rapture. Because when she got to communist China, they talked about how nobody's ready for nobody's ready to give their lives. He said, We've been teaching them all these years. They wouldn't suffer. They'd be raptured first. They misapplied the scriptures, right? Misapplying the scripture has real consequences. So, how do we avoid misapplying the scriptures? So I gave a couple of points. Let me review a couple of those real quick. We determine the context of the scripture based on other surrounding verses, right? So we covered that. Um, 2 Corinthians 10.5, go ahead and turn there as we continue here our review. I gave you guys last time a bunch of verses. We're going to go over one or two per point and just kind of recover where we're at. 2 
So you determine the context based on other surrounding verses. 2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Uh, I grew up in, uh, I, 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 say, I said this before, but it bears repeating. I grew up in uh, youth group purity culture. And this verse was all about not lusting. Just bring every thought into captivity, Tatsuo. Just when you get lustful thoughts, just bring it into captivity. And by the way, you shouldn't lust. Just gonna throw that out there. There's an application there. But that's not what the verse is talking about, right? It's not what it's talking about. Look at the surrounding verses. Look at verses, let's start in verse two. But I beseech you that I may not be bold when I am present with that confidence, wherewith I think to be bold against some who think of us as if we walked according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalted itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. So the, the context of the verse is what? Apologetics, right? You street preachers know that. When you out on the streets, what do you encounter? False religions, atheists, philosophical arguments. And we are to bring every argument into the captivity of Christ. We are to bring it to the place of Christ, and we are to reason from God's perspective. That's what it's talking about there. That's what it's talking about there. Uh, I read before, I'll read it one more time. This is John Piper's take on this verse. He says, when Paul says first, that he's destroying arguments and arrogant opinions against God, and second, that he's taking thoughts or minds captive, we need to realize that it is the minds and thoughts of others. He is not talking about taking his own thoughts captive. It is the thoughts of others. In other words, it's as if Paul is saying, I'm visiting these rascals in Corinth who are so boastful in their philosophical prowess, and I'm going to demolish them, not by counter-philosophy, but by divine power. I'm going to show them power, and they're going to collapse in their thinking, and then I'm going to take their thoughts captive so that they now obey Christ. It's an apologetic passage that is so often our church is misapplied to lust, and it's not. You don't have to turn there. You guys know what I'm going to say next. Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. You're going to hear this. I don't know when. Maybe the night of the college football championship. <laughs> next Super Bowl. By the winner of the NBA Finals. That's how we hear it. Right? I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. So did Christ not strengthen the other team? Yeah. Were there Christians on that team that he didn't strengthen? He only strengthened you? You're his favorite? Right? That's not what this is talking about. Uh, I applied for a job. You think you're going to get it? Well, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. And you can abuse scripture. That's not what that's talking about. What did Paul talk about? You look at the surrounding verses. Look at verse 11. Oh, you, know, you didn't turn there. I'll read it to you. It's okay. Not that I speak in respect of want. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Paul is saying I can be hungry or I can be full. I can be rich or I can be poor. I can be hot or I can be clothed. I can be poor or I think he said one right. I can be naked or clothed. In other words, whatever circumstance God puts me in, he strengthens me to live in that circumstance. And when we make it about the Super Bowl, we cheapen it. Because that's not what it's talking about. When we make it about jobs, we cheapen it because that's not what it's talking about. It doesn't mean, honey, I need you to open the pickle jar for me. I can do all things through. That's not what it's talking about. And how many Christians today have heard a watered-down version of this verse? And when trial comes, they collapse. And when suffering comes, they give in. And when temptations come, they follow them. You know why? Because they've never been taught how to be abased and how to abound. They've never been taught how to be full and how to be hungry. Every little trial in the Christian life trips them up because they've never been taught that Christ is sufficient for everything. 
That's what that verse means. That verse does not mean God will help you win the Super Bowl. That verse means Christ is sufficient in all aspects of life, in all conditions of life. We can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. Again, it's looking at things based on the surrounding verses. I'm going to give you one more that I didn't give you last time in this, in this point here. Go to 2 Peter 1.20. 2 Peter 1.20. It was in my notes last time, and I think I skipped over it for time, but since we're heat back, let's go ahead and look at it real quick. We're talking about finding context based on the surrounding verses. First, or 2 Peter 1.20. Knowing this first, no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. Now, you may not be like me, and you may not have gone at one point in your life to a secret sense of the church. I did. Uh, I, I, some of you guys who are here remember me talking about the uh, church that had the uh, altar call where you just had to go to the back room. When you walked in the back room, they said, oh, you're saved. Congratulations. This is that church. And so we had uh, a Bible study, and, and this verse was brought up. When I say brought up, I mean, there was 300 people in that Bible study. Kind of like a church service. And the teacher said, the Bible says the scripture is not of any private interpretation. That means it doesn't have one meaning. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you? What is it? The Bible is subjective, he said. Not objective, subjective. It speaks to each of us differently. He said, I've never heard that. It's a teaching that's out there. It's out there in some big, big churches. What does the Bible mean to you? God speaks to each of us differently in the text. But look at the surrounding verses. Look at verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables, and we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, Whereunto you do well, that you take heed as into a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn, the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, or man, but men, holy men of God, spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. What Peter is saying here is that the, the, the writers of the Bible didn't interpret what God said to them, right? It wasn't their opinions of what God said. They gave us exactly what God said. That's what he's saying. Not that it's subjective, right? It's not what he's saying. Scripture has meaning. A text has meaning. If we veer from the meaning of the text, we're being dishonest with the word of God. That's just why I want to go back in there. So determine the context based on surrounding verses. The, the next point was determine the context based on the chapter. If you can't figure out the context from the verses around it, and sometimes you can't, what is the chapter talking about? Okay, uh, We looked at uh, Luke 15, the prodigal son. You remember that. What's the emphasis on the prodigal son today when you hear it preached? The father waiting to receive sinners and welcome them home. He is. It's true. Okay. He does. But that's not the point of the story. The main player in the story is not the father. It's the older brother. Yeah, that's right. Because earlier in the chapter, the Pharisees were begrudging the sinners who were coming to Christ and saying, well, wait a minute now. We've been faithful all this time. What's he welcoming these, these sinners yeah, for? Yeah, yeah. What did the older brother say? What are you, what are you killing the fatted calf for him for? Yeah, right. I've been in your house and served this whole time. So the chapter tells us, if you look back in the chapter, that parable is not focused on the father. It's focused on the older brother. And the message, the message of the parable is not... God just waiting at the door, waiting for sinners to come to him, although he welcomes sinners. The moral of the story is don't begrudge That's sinners right. coming to Christ. Right. Don't think yourself better than those who sin worse yeah. than you. We all need Christ. And by the way, the older brother's problem was that he stayed in the father's house the whole time yeah. as a servant, not as a son. Don't dwell in God's house as a servant. You are a son or a daughter. chapter tells us the context. See, I have nothing on that page. I want to go over uh, Acts chapter 2. Go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 2. We're almost on the review, I promise. 
Acts 2.38. You know it. I know it. I was preaching at the Super Bowl one time, and a guy stood there on a... Uh, he had his own microphone. He stood there yelling, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38, Acts 2... All over and over and over again. Acts 2.38, Acts 2.38. Then repent, or then Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. I'm not going to go back into the point about why he says, for the remission of sins. We got into that. If you are watching online, you want to know about that, go back to part one of this, of this message. But we're just kind of reviewing. But I want to get back to why did he say, in the name of Jesus Christ? Didn't Jesus say baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost? He did. Is Peter changing what God had said? No, he's not. But the context matters. Look at verse 22. Ye men of Israel. No, I'm sorry. Skip that one. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter is giving a sermon to the people who crucified Jesus. Those who rejected his lordship. Those who said, we'll not have this man to reign over us. Those who said, we have no king but Caesar. Those who said, his blood be on us and on our children. So when he's preaching them to be baptized, he's not changing the mode of baptism, right? He's saying, you must be baptized under the authority of the one whose authority you have rejected. That's what he's saying. That's the context of the whole sermon in Acts. You rejected him, God overruled you. You murdered him, God raised him from the dead. You didn't want him, God approved of him by signs and wonders, which, which he did in your midst. In other words, he's emphasizing the lordship of Christ that they had rejected and said you must submit to his lordship. That's what Peter's saying there. So we determine the context sometimes based on the chapter. And the last point I didn't get to was we determine the context based on the book sometimes. Sometimes it matters that we understand the context the book is written in, or else it becomes very, very dangerous. Let me give you a few examples. The book of 1 John. Several false doctrines come out of the book of 1 John. John was writing against Gnosticism, which had been drawing people away from the, from the church. The Gnostics taught that the spirit was righteous, but the body was evil, and the sin you did in your body didn't affect your spirit because the body was evil, the spirit was righteous. Okay, 1 John 3, go ahead and turn there. 1 John 3, 6. Let's get into this. 1 John 3, 6. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Uh, I'm reading out the King James. So um, there's a group out there. You guys know them. I know them. Sinless perfectionists, right? Who will jump to this verse in the King James. They love the way the King James writes it. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth yeah, not. Right. And they believe and they teach that you, if you're a true Christian, you never sin. You're sinlessly perfect. And a, a person who, who sins has not seen him nor known him. Okay? But what they're doing is they're divorcing that verse from the context of the book that it's written in. John was fighting a particular false doctrine when he said that. And in the Greek, as opposed to the English, it comes out a little bit differently. It doesn't say that those who are saved sin not. It says those who continue in sin, those who live in sin, those who indulge in sin. What he was fighting against was these people who said, you can sin all you want to. You're okay. Your body's wicked anyways. It's your spirit that's righteous and it won't affect your spirit. So live as you want. And John is saying, those who go on practicing sin, those who abide in him, they don't go on in sin. They don't practice sin, right? Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him. Uh, whosoever uh, abides in sin has not seen him. That's the emphasis there is abiding in sin. Those who sin with no regret, those who sin with no uh, fight against their sin, they don't know Christ. They also taught... These Gnostics taught that Jesus couldn't be God in the flesh because the flesh was wicked. Therefore, he only appeared to have a human body, but he was just a spirit who appeared to be a man. Look at 1 John 4.1. John's going to argue that here. 1 John 4.1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. 
Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, where you heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. They were denying that Jesus came in the flesh, which is the error John is addressing. Okay? Uh, there are groups say they take verse 2, and they say that anyone who confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Look at verse 2 again. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And there you have it. Roman Catholics are of God. Mormons are of God. The Watchtower is of God. All those groups. Islam is of God. All those groups confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. If you don't understand the context of the book, you're going right. to go off track. We have to be very, very careful with context. John was saying these Gnostics who teach that Jesus didn't really have a human body, right? They're not of God. He is not saying every group for all of time who confesses this is actually of God. Or you run into a lot of problems. Most Hindus I've met believe Jesus was a real person who came in the flesh. Most Buddhists I've met have, would say that Jesus was a real person who came in the flesh. Christian scientists believe that Jesus was a real person yeah. who came in the flesh. Scientologists believe that Jesus was a real person who came in the flesh. Does that mean they're all Christian groups? Of course not. John's not making a blanket, state, blanket statement that everyone who believes this is of God. He's talking to a particular group at that time who did not confess. Now, today, any group who, who doesn't confess that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, they're not of God. Right? There's an application there. But that's not a blanket statement. But Amy and I, we know people who say, well, of course they're Christians. They believe Jesus Christ came in the flesh. That's all you have to do. That's not what he's saying. Understand context. So important. The next, view, uh, next book is the book of Hebrews. Go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Uh, this book was written to Jews who were following Christ but were tempted to return to the temple worship. They're being urged not to turn back lest they prove they were actually not saved. Uh, you'll find a lot of people, you want to find someone who wants to argue that you can lose your salvation, they're going to argue it from the book of Hebrews. Okay? You've got to understand context. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4 through 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted of the good word of God, and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. Uh, this is the number one passage. If you meet somebody who's arguing to lose your salvation, this is the number one passage they're going to turn to. Um, I, I used to be part of a group, when I was younger, in my teen years, that taught this. So I'm very familiar with the doctrine. And uh, they, they, they've kind of, they've had to change over the years, right? Uh, 20, 25 years ago and before that, they taught that basically anybody who sinned lost their salvation. And they couldn't get it back because it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. That quickly went out the door when they started sinning themselves and their loved ones sinned. And, uh-oh, we want to still be saved, so we're all still saved. So now the, some of those groups have moved to just say, well, if you abandon the faith and apostatize, then, then you've lost your salvation. That's not what it's talking about. So let's look at it in light of the context of Hebrews, right? Verses 4 and 5. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, were made partakers of the Holy Ghost, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. He's speaking of those who are enlightened or given the knowledge of the gospel, of Jesus Christ. And they have tasted of the heavenly gift. The word tasted means tested in the Greek. They've tested the heavenly gift. They've tested the, world of, uh, the word of God and the powers of the world to come. They've dipped their toe into the Christian life but never fully embraced it. What we have here is a, a false profession of faith without full surrender. It's truly a try-Jesus mentality. In Bakersfield, by our house, there's a, a church on the corner, a couple houses down from us. Is that what I'm thinking of? You've tried everything else, now try Jesus. That's the mentality. That's the mentality. Try Jesus. You see, but it says that they've made partakers of the Holy Ghost. You know, people who are in this building, 
are partakers of the Holy Ghost. They share in the blessings of the Holy Ghost. Right? When God blesses a group, unsaved people can share in that blessing. It doesn't mean that they themselves are possessors of the Holy Spirit. They've tested, they've tasted the Christian life, but they've not fully surrendered to it. We'll see that in just a second. I can back that up with Scripture. It says something is impossible with these people. Now, the word impossible is used several times in Hebrews. I think you need to look at each time it's used to understand it doesn't change meaning in the middle of a book. Okay? God doesn't use a word and then change meaning on you in the middle of it. Okay? So let's look at a few of these. Turn to chapter 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11, 6. But without faith, it is, and there's the word, impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It is impossible to please God by faith. It can't be done. It can't be done. Go to chapter 10, verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin. Uh, the King James says not possible. And if you go back and look at the, 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 the Greek underlying that, it says impossible. Same thing. Not possible, impossible. It can't be done, right? The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. Uh, chapter 6, verse 18. Back to chapter 6. Verse 18. That by two immutable things in which, in which it was impossible for God to lie. We might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So we have a strong consolation for the hope set before us. Why? Because it's impossible for God to lie. He can't do it. It's not even slightly possible. So this word impossible, it says it's impossible to renew them to begin to repentance. That should shake our knees a little bit. That should frighten us. Because whatever it's talking about, it's saying it can't be done. Okay? Very important. So what is impossible for those who profess Christ? Look at verse 6. If they shall fall away, to renew them again to repentance, seeing they crucified themselves, the Son of God afresh, and put him to an open shame. He is speaking of those who had tasted and been partakers of the things of the Lord, that is, spiritual things. If they turn back and deny him, it's impossible to renew them again or bring them to true repentance. This is a warning. He's saying, don't go back. Don't turn from the Lord. Don't turn to a lesser thing. It's impossible to renew them again. If you're doubting your faith, press on. Seek the truth. Bring your doubts to the Lord. But you turn back, it's impossible. It's impossible. In other words, those who fully apostatize have, I, have, I believe, no hope of ever coming to true repentance. Uh, I've seen people learn or leave the gospel and, and turn to works-based systems. I've seen people become Roman Catholics, oh, yeah. Eastern Orthodox. Oh, yeah. I have Facebook friends who became Mormons. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. I'm not trying to make a dogmatic statement, but I don't believe they will ever come back to the faith. Yeah. Because I believe it's impossible once they have turned from the Lord to renew them again to true repentance. Yeah. No. I have Friends on Facebook, friends I grew up with who are now atheists. Wow. They've publicly renounced faith in Christ. We talk a lot here about those people on YouTube who are deconstructing their faith. That is openly mocking Christ. Right. Openly casting off the Christian faith. Yeah. I'm not saying don't preach the gospel to them. I'm saying I don't believe okay. it will be possible to bring them to true repentance. You say, that's not a very positive thing, Pastor. Yeah. That's why it's a warning. He's saying, don't go back. Don't turn from the commandment. It's impossible at that point. Don't turn back. Let me give you a couple of other passages to consider along these lines. Luke chapter 9. Turn there. Luke chapter 9. These are along the same lines of what he's saying in Hebrews chapter 6. 957 is where we're going to be. 957. The Bible says, and it came to pass that as they went in, went in the way, a certain man said unto him, Lord, I will follow thee whithersoever thou goest. And Jesus said unto him, Foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. And he said unto another, Follow me. But he said, Suffer, Lord, or Lord, suffer me first to go and bury my father. Jesus said unto him, Let the dead bury their dead, but go thou and preach the kingdom of God. 
And another also said, Lord, I will follow thee, but let me first go bid them farewell, which are at, my, at home at my house. And Jesus said unto him, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. All of these people are saying, I, I want to follow you, Lord, but I want to do this other thing over here. He says, you can't start and then go back. You're not fit for the kingdom of God. You say, well, they could become fit later. He doesn't say that, though. We're adding to the scriptures there. He says, if you come and you turn back, you're not fit for the kingdom of God. That's a serious warning. Don't go back. Turn to, uh, well, I forgot to put it in there. Second Peter chapter 2, I believe. Let me find it. I could be leading you astray. Second Peter 2. Yeah, Second Peter 2. He's talking about false teachers, okay? And by the way, these are false teachers who didn't come into the church as false teachers. They came in as true believers, professing faith, and then turned from the faith. Remember Paul and Acts warned the Ephesian elders, some of your own number are going to raise up, drawing disciples away. What does he say in verse 20? For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world and the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, to, than after they have known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. You know, that's very similar wording to Judas. When he talks about the one who betrayed the Son of Man, it's better for him that he had not been born. Yeah. It's better for this person right. who turns from the faith to have never heard the gospel yeah. than to turn from it. You are a Judas if you turn from Christ. That's serious. That, that's, that's heavy stuff right there. The dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the, the, the sow that was washed and her wallowing to or in the mire. In other words, there's still a pig. There's still a dog. Yeah. They got cleaned up a little bit on the outside for a while, but they're right back to what they were doing. They weren't, they weren't true professors. They didn't lose it. They were never saved. They were never saved. That's why I tremble. Such, such an insignificant verse in the Bible, really. It's kind of a verse you read passing through. Demas has forsaken me, having loved the present world. When I read these passages, I think, oh my goodness. It's better for him to have never heard than to turn from it. He's not fit for the kingdom of God. Go back to Hebrews chapter 6. This is the warning. Don't turn from Christ. It's a message we need today. Because people are turning from Christ. They're doing it publicly. They're trending on Twitter and Facebook. Turning from their faith. Deconstructing their faith. Mocking Christ. Mocking the church. Mocking the scriptures. And the Bible says it's better for them to have never have known than to turn from it. It's impossible to renew them again under repentance. I'm not saying a person who falls away stops going to church for a couple of years. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying somebody who outright rejects the gospel says, I am not a Christian. I reject God. Or someone who turns from salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and they go to a church that teaches salvation by works. They've turned from the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. They have renounced Christ. I'm saying be careful with that. Be very careful. Look at verse 7, Hebrews 6. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed, Receive a blessing from God, but that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. This confirms our interpretation above. The reference to thorns and briars being cut off and burned is correlating directly to John chapter 15. Right? He's cutting off the true vine and the branches that are not bearing fruit are cut off. Who are those branches there? The Pharisees. The religious Jews who didn't possess Christ, they were cut off and the, the Gentiles were grafted in. And he's saying here about those who it's impossible to renew them, get into repentance. Those who have tasted all this stuff, they, they turn from it. 
But that which, is, that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. These are people who profess Christ but are not connected to the vine. They are dead branches, false professors of faith. So you say, what, what are you saying then? What I'm saying is when you turn from Christ, you're approving. Your profession of faith was never true and valid. It was false. It was phony. Maybe you believed it was true. That doesn't make it true. There are a lot of people who think they're saved and they're not saved. Amen. I mean, there's the false Christians, right? There's the people who know what they're doing. You, you know them. They're on TV with the big fancy suits. They know what they're doing. But when Jesus said, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, those people are convinced they're Christians. Yeah, they are. They're pleading their case. Like, like Lord, 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 haven't we done this in your name and this in your name and many mighty works in your name? Of course, we're your children. And he says, I never knew you. Depart from me. They're convinced they're saved. But they're lost. What do we do, Pastor? Test yourself. Make sure you love Christ for Christ. Make sure you're doing this for him. Make sure you're following him because he's worthy. Because he's beautiful. Because he's altogether lovely. Because even street preachers, guys, even especially street preachers, I think, will stand there and say, but Lord, Lord, we preach to the Super Bowl. We preach to the hockey games. We preach to the colleges. And they do it for the YouTube views. And they do it because they want persecution. And they got a complex. And they just like being outrageous, right? There's a real danger for street preachers. Make sure you're preaching Christ for Christ. Because if you're not, if you're not, you're self-deceived. He says that they are persuaded better things of these believers, things that accompany salvation. True fruit is the result of truly possessing Christ. False faith won't continue, but true faith will bear fruit. True repentance has fruit. Matthew 3, 8, right? Bring forth fruit meat for repentance. In other words, bring forth evidence of your repentance. That's what we need more of in the church. We need to stop counting hands, counting cards, counting prayers, and saying, you're saved because you said you are. We need a prove-it mentality. I don't mean treat them like lesser Christians. You know, somebody makes a profession of faith, I'm not going to stare them down and go, I don't believe you. Prove it to me. But I'm going to watch them. I'm going to watch them carefully. And if they stop following Christ... If they seem apathetic, disinterested, and there's no fruit in their life, I have no reason to believe they're truly born again. That's right. You shouldn't have to force people to serve Christ. That's right. I know a lot of churches that get a lot of false conversions, and the pastor spends his, all of his time, 40 hours a week, trying to make lost people Christians because yeah. they're not acting it themselves. Yeah. 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 That's not the gospel way. Yeah. Hebrews 10. Go turn there real quick. We're almost done. I promise. Jesus time is it? Yeah. What time is it? I don't care. Let's keep going. <laughs> Hebrews 10, 38. Oh, yeah. I'm not almost done. I lied. Let's keep going. <laughs> Hebrews 10, 38. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them which who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. The same context applies here. By the way, I've used this in arguing you can lose your salvation when I was a teenager in that church. I used this verse. Right? If any man draw back, my soul has no pleasure in him. God will pull his spirit out of you. God will pull the Holy Spirit back if you draw back from him. That's a lie. Those who draw back demonstrate they were not true believers. Their faith is not genuine. In order to understand these verses, we need to understand the purpose of the book. Otherwise, it leads us to false doctrine. And by the way, Paul says here, uh, not Paul. I don't believe Paul wrote Hebrews. I said that. It's, it's tradition. Anyways, the writer of Hebrews says here, those who draw back, draw back unto what? Perdition. What does that mean? They were never truly saved. He says, we are not of them which draw back, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. How, do you, how, do, how is your soul saved? How do you believe rightly? You continue in the faith. That's what he's saying. Let me show you the context of the book. In the first two chapters, he's making an active comparison between Jesus and the law. Jesus and Moses and so on. The theme is that Jesus is better than everything. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than the law. Jesus is better than Moses. Chapters 3 and 4 is making comparison to the Jews in the wilderness and they're turning back from the faith. Consider the parallel between the 40 years wilderness exile and the 40 year overlap between Christianity and Temple Judaism. 
For the first 40 years, the Christians were considered to be just another sect of Judaism. But with the coming destruction of the temple, that unity would be broken, and the church would come out and be seen for the first time as a separate religious entity. Go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3. Verse 12. Hebrews 3, 12. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. Take heed, lest there be in any of you, what? An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. He makes the comparison to Old Testament Israel constantly in the book of Hebrews. And they came out, and afterwards they believed not, and God destroyed them. He's saying, don't be like them. Don't do that. The context of the book of Hebrews is, don't go back to temple Judaism. There's no salvation there. If you go back, you evidence you never truly believed. Give me a few more real quick. Hebrews 8, 13. Hebrews 8, 13. I promise we are almost done. Yeah. Hebrews 8, 13. In that he saith, the new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. He's warning them. This old system is vanishing away. It's going away. The temple is going to be destroyed. You're going back to a temple that's about to be yeah. destroyed. To sacrifices that are about to come to an end. Don't go back. Hebrews 10, 22, go there. This is important. Hebrews 10, 22 is a very important passage here. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promise. Let us consider one another to provoke uh, unto love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully, after that we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for a judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sore punishment. Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite under the Spirit of grace. Hebrews 10.26 uh, gets used once in a while to say, well, you know, if we sin after we're saved, there's, we lose our salvation. There's no sacrifice for sins. It's not what he's saying. Context of the book. Don't go back to temple Judaism. It's about to be destroyed. Right? The blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. What he's saying is, if we, if we sin after that we receive the knowledge of the truth, that is, if we go back after coming and hearing the gospel of Christ, professing faith in Christ, there remains no more sacrifice for sins. In other words, there is nothing in the temple that can take away your sins. There is nothing there that can redeem you. Nothing. And by the way, link this back to chapter 6, it's impossible for you to be renewed to repentance again. There's no sacrifice for sins. There's no forgiveness of sins if you go back to the old system. Turn to chapter 10, verse 35. 10, verse 35. We see this throughout the book of Hebrews. If we don't understand the context of the book we're reading, we're going to get so much wrong and misapply so many texts. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. For ye have need of patience, that after you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. God was tarrying his judgment on Jerusalem, but it was coming. And the time was coming when he would no longer tarry. He would come. He says, for you have need of patience. After you have done the will of God, you might receive the promise. This leads right into chapter 11 and the list of people who pressed on in the faith, though not receiving the promises in their lifetime. So in some places, we need to find the context in the surrounding verses, sometimes in the chapter, and sometimes you need to think about the book. What is this book written for? What is he saying? Is there a theme in the book? We just did on Sunday, right? A survey of Colossians and a survey of Proverbs. Why? Because I'm getting into those books verse by verse. And before I go verse by verse, I want everyone to know what the books are talking about. So that when we get to verses that seem hard or seem strange or seem to say something contradictory, we can say, what is this book trying to communicate to us? 
and we can understand the passage based on what the book is talking about. Let me finish in 2 Timothy 2.15. Hallelujah. You know it, I know it, we all know it. 2 Timothy 2.15, but it's so important. I grew up in the Awana groups, so this was the main verse. Who's been in Awana here? Come on. Let's all start a support group. This is the main verse. Should we sing the song, Approve Workman and Honest Shit? No, I'm not going to do it. I remember it, too. I could probably sing the whole thing word for word. If I could find a, an outfit big enough for me, I'd probably just sing the whole song for you. Sparky suit. 2 Timothy 2.15. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, we are not to be casual readers of the Word of God. We are to study the Word of God. If we mishandle, misinterpret, or misapply the Scriptures, we will be ashamed before Jesus. God. We are speaking in His stead, yeah. in His place. Help us. This verse is often misapplied itself. We're taught that this is a reference to the dispensational method of Scripture interpretation. These dispensational scholars divide the Scripture into seven dispensations, and they're saying this verse is a prophecy of that, I don't know. Dispensationalism didn't come around to the late 1800s. That system of interpretation didn't exist at the time this was written. So this verse is not talking about that. Okay, I'm not starting a dispensational debate tonight, but I'm saying this verse is not talking about that. And the Bible is not subjective, it's objective. Right? It's objective. So what is it saying? It's a reference to properly handling and interpreting the Word of God. Rightly preaching the word of God in context. The Greek word in 2 Timothy 2.15 is translated, translated as divided, right? Rightly dividing the word of truth means to cut straight. Not just cut, but cut straight. It means to direct aright. It means to set forth truthfully without perversion or distortion. It means to cut it straight, not adding a word to it or taking a word from it. It means to properly handle the word of God. As you study the word, work hard to understand and apply its true meaning in context. Then you'll be a workman approved before God. But be warned, you misapply the scriptures. You will stand before the author and give an account of why you spoke in his name, yeah. in his stead, saying things he never intended us to say. Handle the word of God so carefully. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this evening, for a chance to finish this message. It's been a couple weeks in the, in, the, in, the, in the waiting, but Lord, I'm so burdened that we interpret the Bible correctly, that we use it in context. There's so much out there in our churches and on social media abuse the scripture for our own purposes. May this church never be a church that abuses the scripture. May we stay close to the text. Close to the text. Not our opinions of the text. Not what we want the text to say. But to draw our truth from the word of God. I'm so mindful, God, that you're going to hold me accountable for what I say. Guard my lips. Guard our church from error. Lord. Yeah. And though at times it's easy to misuse the Bible out on the streets or wherever, Lord, may we be faithful mm. ministers of the gospel of Christ. Yes. You've entrusted to us your word. May we not be frivolous with it. In Jesus' name, amen.